and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Trap Draw podcast. My name is DJ, uh, joined by my friends and associates, KVV, Kevin Van Valkenburg. Kevin, welcome. Hello. How, hi, how are you? DJ, I am ready to be the Pippin to your Jordan uh, today. And we talk about uh, one of our favorite shows. Excellent. Uh, great to be with you and making a very exciting I, I, kind of a rehab start. You know, we want to see what kind of velocities on the fastball. We want to see if the slider's moving. Uh, you know, we know he's got nasty stuff. We don't know how he's going to come back from the birth of his first child. Coming in from the bullpen, Chris Solly Solomon. Solly, great to hear your voice again, my man. I thought we were going to go with basketball. I was going to say, I'm willing to be your Judd Bushler uh, as the third man <laughs> yes. in on this. But if I could be a, uh, you know, moving from a, moving maybe from a starting role to the bullpen to close out the season here, uh, just trying to do anything to help the team. Anything I can do to help the team. Uh, we're going to talk about one of my favorite television shows ever. I think, like, the way wow, you, awesome. I think the way you, maybe feel about succession dj is i think how i feel about the bear like it it it's a totally different level for me i'm not like the most literary when it comes to this stuff and i'm not probably the best at, like talking about it but it had an effect on me and i'm ready and excited to talk about it hell yeah you were you were all up in our slack when the show was going on being like i need i need you guys to finish the show because i have to talk to people about it sorry that we made you wait like another month to, uh, to sit down and talk about it well but, i started yeah. dming with casey i think was the first one that got to forks episode seven <laughs> but i didn't even want to say like talk to me when you get through episode seven because i didn't yeah, yeah. want to spoil the i didn't want to like even hint at the excitement in that i'm big on spoilers on all that stuff you got to be hit with it in the right flow and oh my god did that one floor me uh speaking of spoilers i wouldn't be surprised if if our guy christopher store does just like a, a teary-eyed judd bushler uh montage in season three <laughs> i could see that you know what did this guy mean to the city of chicago uh you know maybe set to like the new pornographers or something like that you know who who knows but uh we're gonna get into all things uh chicago and the bear but first we're gonna pay some bills and give a big thank you to our friends at Holderness and Born H and B. You've heard us reference these guys many, 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 many times. If you've ever spent any time in the NLU Pro Shop, you've seen all kinds of high quality H and B products there. Much like the, the the shirt that Kevin's wearing right now, Kev. You know, I, I don't need to put words in your mouth. What, what, tell me about it. Uh, these shirts are so classy. Like I, my wife is constantly like, you know what? Like those are way nicer than your previous polos. And, uh, you know, she's, she's got good taste. And so I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm always out. Uh, you know, when I, when I do get out to play golf, which isn't as much as I would like, uh, I, I do get some nice compliments from people about, man, that's a good looking, good looking shirt. Can I just say what a great hit, like back in like 2016, like the first supplier of golf shirts we ever used was Holderness and Born. And mm -hmm. there's a reason that we're still with them like seven years later. And so that's, that's the highest compliment I can pay. And there's a reason you see them when you're, you're rolling through, you know, you're, you're in a top 100 country club golf shop. You're going to see H and B in there. You know, they've been in our shop as Solly mentioned, it's the fits always great. They hold up great in the wash. They're tailored, but they never feel tight. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, a great fit and a great, uh, product for the price point. So go check out their website. They got all kinds of new arrivals, all kinds of new stuff going on. They've got shorts, they've got hoodies, they've got, you know, everything, a lot, a lot of stuff beyond just the golf polos. 
those. So go to their website, hbgolf.com. And while you're there, you can use 15% off with the code NLU15. Uh, you that, that again, 15% off with eight at hbgolf.com. Thank you again to Holderness and Born for all the support throughout the years and uh, for uh, all the support in our shop as well. So, Guys, we're going to be talking about The Bear Season 2. Big reason we want to do this is because we did a, a lengthy, lengthy podcast about The Bear Season 1. Kevin, you know, you remember uh, hopping on for that one before we made our, our higher view official. Uh, and I guess I'll, I'll start with this. Let, let's let's start with the, the big question first. Season 1 or Season 2? Where, where are we at? I would just like to say, I think we discovered the bear. I mean, much like, you know, TC <laughs> discovered Scotty, like, you know, we, we discovered the bear that wasn't going to take off. It wasn't for that podcast that we did. I have to lean season two. I think I, I was one of these people who was like kind of mulling, man, season one was so good. Does this show like need a, a second episode? Uh, I was or see a second season and I'm, I'm so like blown away. I think, uh, I feel like Solly, like, I, I don't want to get too like cheesy about it, but I think this show like actually like made me see the world a little bit differently and made me feel a little bit like warm inside. And, uh, it, it was like Ted Lasso without the cheesiness stuff without the, uh, it was just kind of uplifting and hopeful. It and was not like Ted Lasso. Let's move past that one. <laughs> no, but I think it has the same I, kind I of it's got optimism, the same, same, the same yeah. col- collaborative uh, sort of spirit uh, without, you know, I think the sort of uh, being overwrought and too, too much. I, the bear to me never gets 10% too much, which I think Ted Lasso did particularly in the last two seasons. Uh, and so fingers crossed that, that uh, Storer and the gang keep that rolling. But yeah, I'd, I'd lean season two. Solly, what about you? And, and also, let's just, you know, you weren't on the last podcast, so I do want to unpack, like, what made this rocket to the top of your your list of favorite TV shows? Well, I think it, it goes, I've learned a lot from you on, over the years on a lot of different things, but one of the things just being, like, storytelling in general, right? And uh, my wife and I are, I'm extremely well aware of what we're currently doing, which is we're watching Suits right now, which is mm-hmm. a great show to throw on and just go on a very fictional ride. Like, it is mm-hmm. just the most forced dialogue, storytelling. It is smacks you in the face with making it as obvious as possible for the lowest common denominator of viewer. And I'm very well aware of that. And it fits what we're doing. And it's the, a good new parenting show. You can't have too much on your plate right. when you're new parent. Yes. If you walk out of the room for 15 minutes, like you come back and you're like, what, did they solve it? Yeah, they solved it. Like that's pretty much it. But the bear is so is on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of its patience and its subtlety. And like if you there's certain kinds of shows that every scene and every bit of dialogue has to be leading somewhere. Like if they're gonna have this conversation, that means that you know these two guys are gonna have this fight later on. Kind of Chekhov's gun on repeat. Yeah. And, and so much of television and the bear is not like that at all. Like mm-hmm. Marcus and uh, I'm forgetting the gentleman that he visited in Copenhagen, like their conversation over the Lucas. Yeah. Lucas, yeah. Their conversation Luke, is there. Maybe it's Luca. Sorry. Yeah. I think it's Luca. Their conversation over making desserts was, I was hanging all over it because it wasn't like, all right, what does this mean? It wasn't like, well, what's What's the downstream effect of this? It was just about that moment and that television. I don't know that storytelling moment. And I feel like, Everything is trending in TV and in movies the opposite direction. Like there is no time for patience. There's no budget for patience. Everything is just so optimized. And I feel like this show bucks that trend so much. And that is what I feel like. I know I'm watching TV, but it feels so fucking real. Like it feels like I'm watching a real story. And I'm 
I don't care one bit about fine dining. I've never been to a fine dining restaurant, despite the reputation. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know anything about that world. I don't really care that much. I don't watch Top Chef. I don't care that much. And I feel like I went on a, uh, I feel like I understand that world through this show. And that's like the highest compliment I can pay it. I think, man, yeah, I, I echo a ton of that. I mean, I think at its core, it's kind of this show about just practices, right? And, and you know, whether that's fine dining or whether that's golf or whether that's yoga or whether that's, you know, woodworking or whether that's baseball or whether, you know, all, all these different things. It, it's kind of this, I guess, definitely season two. It's It's kind of this show about like, man, how do you, how do you spend your time and why is that a, you know, a valuable pursuit, right? And, and finding value in these kind of common pursuits and, and taking them to this nth degree. And that's what I loved so, so, so much about season two. I think that's what the Forks episode, you know, s starts at the most basic part of that principle, like what value can you find in just polishing forks all day? And it just extrapolates it out to like, what does service mean? What does it mean to find purpose in your life? What does it mean to take care of other people? All, all of these things. And it just does such a good job of, of making that stuff. So, um, I, I don't, I don't know, like approachable, I feel like is almost like a, has like a negative connotation, but it, it, it is like really a, an accessible way to get into some of these really high themes, right? Because one, one of the things that's great about it's it's kind of a double-edged thing about the last you know whatever 10 15 20 years of like this golden age of of tv is like you, you watch a show like westworld i feel like where you know you get through season one and you get and it's great and like i i really really loved it and i'm totally in on the story and i'm in on the themes and i'm in on what they're what they're putting down and what they're trying to get across and then you get into season two and it's just like man like I, I don't have like a, a lit degree and I don't know what Shakespearean play you're referencing. And I feel like a fucking idiot watching this show it's and work. Like, yeah. And I'm like, I, I, there's a fine line, right. Where it's like, I, I, I want, to, uh, you know, storytelling that like uses all of those things and pushes the, the form forward and does all of that stuff. But I also don't want to feel like an idiot the entire time. If I'm not spending 60 hours a week, like reading about, you know, the text that they're referencing and all, all of these other things. I think the reason I love the bear so much is because it, it, it does, it strikes that balance of injecting so many of those things and so many interesting themes and heavy topics and all of these things with like, with it also being a show that's just like very easy to watch in, in 30 minute increments or 35 yeah. minute increments. You know what I mean? Does that, does it's, that make sense? It's, it's never pretentious, right? It ne yeah. The bear never like looks down on you and is like, oh. It's such you're a not faster way of saying what I was trying to say over the last five you're, minutes there. You're not smart <laughs> enough to get this. And if you if you don't get it, like you're not cool enough. Like you can you could do a whole, you know, when the ringer does great podcasts like about the bear and you can talk about it in depth and you can sort of get all these like Michael Mann references and Ridley Scott references into the like way that they're doing filmmaking or whatever. Or you can enjoy it as like, the way, honestly, the way that it resonated most with me was like, it's a kind of an ode to collaboration. It, and and it very like was personal for me because it was like legitimately one of the biggest reasons that I left ESPN was like, I felt like I was like siloed in this. Like, so you can exercise box. your First Amendment rights? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, was that I felt like I was doing like good work, but I was doing it alone. Like it was like one editor and like, they just gave me an assignment and I did it. And it was, and like with NLU, it was like, oh, these people are going to talk about stuff and they're going to push you to stuff and they're going to contribute to do stuff. And they're going to all try to like make the same thing that we're all doing together better. 
And like, it's only like on us to sort of like do it. There's nobody who else going to, there's not this big behemoth of like, you know, ESPN doesn't exist. And, and the sort of the idea of like making a restaurant or like making a media company so felt very similar to me. And I, I just, it connected with me on a level that I was surprised almost that I didn't quite, quite get in season one, but I really did in season two where I was like, God, like this is the kind of such a rewarding thing to have other people push you to do good shit and to have it connect with people. And that's not that, you know, dissimilar to the, what hopefully what we do here, here. I totally agree. I mean, I think that's a big part of why season two kind of took off, you know, it seemed like on social media or whatever, it just it kind of felt like one of those inescapable shows uh, over the course of season two and people kind of watching the episodes. And I know there's, there's kind of a whole debate now about like whether they should have dumped them all at once or dumped them in the kind of, three episode increments or whatever they did, or if they should have gone week by week, uh, like succession. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but uh, I'm curious about that. And also like if you had any thoughts on kind of why you think it really like got in the, the zeitgeist this time around. I, I saw someone had a tweet uh, recently that was like, Hey, this, this week would have been vicious. The, the sixth, the sixth episode, if it went like succession, like succession is a topic of conversation every Monday, the Sunday after the episode comes out and like there's time for it to breathe. And I'm a big fan of bingeable shows. I like to sit and watch them all. I hadn't really thought of that until I read that. I was like, yeah, this show of all shows should, should breathe week to week. I really do think so. I, some shows just like lose their luster week to week. Like it doesn't, uh, they don't stand alone very well on their own. And you kind of need that constant run to keep distracting you from the fact that maybe it's not that great of a show. And this is the opposite of it. Like you can sit and think about it for a whole week. And uh, I, I guess, yeah, I, I was fully transformed in one tweet of like, yeah, dude, like this probably should be of all shows, like should be spaced out week to week. I kind of agree. It's just because I love like the community of like talking yes. about those kind of things of whether it's on social media. I mean, like that's what made like, the Sopranos really popular and resonate larger in culture. And that's what made game of Thrones that way. It's like, everybody wanted to hear your takes and you wanted to read the blog posts and you didn't, it wasn't fragmented like all over space. Like now if I'm looking up like, Oh, what was the reaction to, you know, forks? It's, it's much harder to find. Whereas it like would have been right in your face uh, if it had happened. And I would have loved like the contrast between episode six and seven fish and forks is so stark but so also so they're both great episodes of television it would have been fascinating to watch like six like kind of marinate with people for a whole week and then come back and hit the the audience with sort of a much different but sort of hopeful interesting episode like i, I think that would have been so cool and i think some of those get kind of blended in where people's like oh i like fishes better than forks or forks better than fishes like that's okay but it would have been fun to kind of just sit and think on each of them individually yeah, I think I, I think I agree with that. I mean, I know it's easy to say after the fact, probably. And I think the fact that this show even like got made in the first place feels like kind of a, a wonder and a mystery. And now it's this kind of runaway success. So, it you know, the hindsight makes it makes it look like an easy, easy decision. But I'm sure they've kind of been like scrapping and clawing just for, you know, the budget to get this thing made uh, in, can you, in the first place. But, can you remind me, was season one was FX and then on to Hulu and season two is only Hulu. Is that right? Or was it on so, FX? So FX is the people who basically like put up the money and like Hulu is the distributor. Uh, it's a complicated sort of okay. thing. Like FX owns the show, but I think that like Hulu is the distributor. And they were joking on the that Ringer pod uh, that we were listening to about how like Disney is paying the bills for like the music stuff. So I don't, I wish someone 
you know, we have a, a couple refuge members who work in TV. I wish they could have a better, like they should be here to explain like, no, 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 like this is how it works and the distribution of it. Um, but it might be like FX is a partial owner, uh, but it was never on like traditional TV. It was only like distributed on Hulu, like in a big drop. So, which is a, yeah, it was a whole other thing. That's a good reminder of just, I, I don't know the last time I like turned on the channel FX. I have no idea what's on that channel. I have no idea what you would find if you turned it on. I, it's just, uh, yeah, that's a whole other confusing thing. Kev, you mentioned the music. Should we, should we get into that now? I know that's a, a massive, massive, massive part of the show. Yeah. Needle drops out the ass. Uh, no real traditional score. It's kind of just banger after banger. It's like Kendall Roy's birthday party uh, out there. But what, what, what sticks with you about the, the music in the show? Well, I think we talked a little bit about this in our first pod is that it's it's never like too cute. Uh, you know, maybe it borders on it sometimes, but it's it's a lot of like obvious like songs that you actually recognize. And so like I think a lot of these sort of shows are or have, you know, producers creators who are like, I want to show off my extensive, like cool music knowledge. And, you know, Star was like, No, I actually want to play like Bruce Hornsby in this first episode. And then I wanna like have you know uh otis redding in this episode and, and there are you i think when you do that when you have those recognizable whether it's van morrison or you know the replacements or whatever you can then have the occasional like obscure one for more of mood music but i don't know i mean it's just I, as someone i think who has to do this kind of stuff i would ask you like what makes for a good needle drop or a good music background stuff and what is is something that you like when you're talking with justine about how to score an episode of strap or an episode of tour sauce when do you say like no that's too much or that's just ridiculous or no that fits just right how do you pick those things yeah i mean I, who knows if if we're good at it or not but i guess the, our process is like uh I, I always go back to um you were giving a lot of shouts to uh the ringer and, and the ringer network but paul thomas anderson was on with bill simmons a couple years ago i think when licorice pizza came out and he was talking about this topic and he was talking about using i think specifically he used uh life on mars by david bowie in the the licorice pizza trailer and the whole gist of his view on using music and using popular music was like you can't expect it to do the heavy lifting for you because i think that's what a lot of a lot of people try to do is like you know hey this song is going to carry the scene or this song is going to get people to a certain emotional place or blah 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 and i think that doesn't work at all at least this was his point that that doesn't work at all unless you've done the legwork to actually like get people most of the way there right and then you, you can't expect david bowie to like do the hard work for you and so what you have to do is build these characters and you have to like you know make it so that like man i've watched richie go through this entire transformation over the course of this forks episode so like when taylor swift love story starts playing like i'm fucking crying in front of the tv like i don't care give a shit about that song man like i don't care about that song at all and like hearing that knowing what it means to him and what it means to his daughter and his wife's getting married to somebody else and all of this stuff is just like oh my god man because you've you've laid all this groundwork like now that's what's making the song hit so well it's not like you know taylor swift is doing five percent of that scene not not 95 percent of that scene and so i think the again it's a long-winded answer but the i think the best stuff is is the stuff that just kind of like gets that last 10 percent without being distracting hopefully right and and it gets people in you know i think when you're doing like the the best job of it it's it, it gets people in the 
it's almost like a prereq, right? Like it gets people in the right mood that you're trying to get them in and it, it gets them in the right headspace and it might remind them of something that, you know, a time and a place or a season or current events or, or whatever. And, uh, that's what like, God, that, I mean, talk about a, a, you know, the uh, grand slam, the strange currencies by REM, like oh, hear, love that. hearing that for the first time, like even in the trailer, just like exploded my brainstem against the wall. Just like, Oh my God, man. Like you, you that's, that's everything. There's a 5,000 word novel like contained within that song that you just sprung on me. And, uh, so I, I think just like trying to bring all that really awesome context is part of it and then i think some of it is also just like hey you know what man i love this song like i think a lot of other people like this song too right and and so trying to find that balance of like not being too clever or too cute or too smart or too you know look at look did you guys notice what i just did like you're, you're not trying to be that guy it's just uh you know you're trying to make everybody have a, a fun time which it, it seems like they are are doing a pretty good job of Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, was there anyone in particular that stood out? Other you guys, other than I mean, I like the the one with Eddie Vedder and Neil Finn, the throw your arms around me, like the duet when they the, right after the fire suppression test, like that that moment where they're all kind of like their their kind of past are flashing for them. That that could almost be like the end of the season, yeah. right? Like they, it could end right there that they pass the fire suppression test. And it's like oh my god, now we're gonna have a restaurant, or whatever, uh, and obviously still have a final to come uh, that sort of sets up season three but that that eddie vetter song uh or cover of it i thought was just so good it made me kind of like, there's a like four of them that in the throughout the season that made me sort of emotional uh and that was one of them yeah i, I agree um but I, I will say you know universal praise we got to be fair and balanced here on the trap draw did they go to strange currencies maybe one or two two times too mm. many you know i, I guess maybe I'll, I'll throw that to you guys but it, i know they're trying to make it kind of like hey this is this is their theme, right? Like this is this is the lovers the lovers theme kind of a thing. But I started to get just a tinge of an eye roll the last maybe two or three times. I don't know if that's fair or not. Did you see that Michael Stipe said that the Bear was his favorite show uh, after the like? Obviously, I don't know if REM cut him a deal on on uh, like how much usage they could have there, but uh, it, he was a huge fan of season one, and so that's part of the homage, I think. But, I, and listen, if the, if that's what's going on in the background, and that's what's going on in your your text messages and your you know your emails, I, I could certainly see getting a little uh, getting a little trigger happy with that one. But that that was the only time where I was like, ah, eh, uh, maybe. Maybe one time too many. You guys are throwing 102 up in the zone. I'm just trying to. I'm trying to paint the corners with 88, 88 mile an hour fastballs here. Again, this is this is. I'm trying to rehab here. Dear listeners, Randy here. Sorry to jump in, but want to thank one of our sponsors, and that is Omni Hotels. And specifically, I want to talk about fall golf. Fall golf in the mountains. There's nothing like it. You all probably saw the Film Room episode recently with Neil and Tron playing Omni Bedford Springs Resort in Pennsylvania and can just imagine playing those tracks with the Allegheny Mountains popping with fall color. Oh, the yellows, the oranges, the reds. In fact, Omni has four mountain courses that would be incredible for some fall golf. Moving south of Bedford Springs but still nestled in the Allegheny Mountains is the Omni Homestead in Virginia where DJ and KVV battled in their film room match. Fresh off a stunning $150 million renovation, it offers two of the country's most historic layouts, the Old Course and the Cascades Course. Fun trivia, the Old Course boasts the nation's oldest first tee in continuous use. How about that? And moving further south is Omni Grove Park Inn, 
located in the North Carolina foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains and close to the scenic Blue Ridge Parkway in Asheville. It's the ideal destination to experience the full glory of autumn hues, especially with its temperate climate during fall months. And then the farthest north, Omni Mount Washington Resort in Brenton Woods, New Hampshire, it's located amidst 800,000 acres of White Mountain National Forest. The Mount Washington course designed by Donald Ross has been named the number one best courses you can play in New Hampshire for the past nine years running. So if fall golf sounds like something you and your buddies, you and your family would be interested in, check out Omni Golf Resorts at omnihotels.com NLU. Again, omnihotels.com slash NLU. Check out those fall colors. We thank Omni for being a sponsor. And now back to the episode. Kev, let me ask you this. Or actually, Solly, I'll, I'll start with you. What did you feel going into season two as far as like, did it did it need a season two, right? Kind of our favorite, one of our favorite, like, are we sure that this, you know, amazing thing that everybody really, really loved is all that great? Like, did you feel like you really needed a season two? And I, I think it was universally loved, but I was kind of on the fence going going into it. I, I think I don't I don't know enough about how it came together and you know what it's like to renew a season. You know, if are you when and when in the course of season one do you start thinking about a season two? When do you get get it greenlit by the studio and blah blah blah? Like all that stuff goes way over my head. So as soon as it ended, I was like, oh god, I really hope that isn't the end of this story because kind of what I talked about in the beginning. I would just I've, I've lost a lot of faith in how a lot of stuff gets done these days. And I'm like, all right, the one show that is like patient storytelling, that is about character development, that is about making you care about this hyper specific thing through the course, of, like through these entry points of these characters and not just smacking you in the face with obvious stuff and not making it work to watch. If that goes away, I'm pretty discouraged about like finding a, a show that kind of hits my wheelhouse. So was definitely excited for season two. And this was way better than I thought it would be. Um, it kind of felt like at the end of season one, they were very much of, like a, um, did you guys ever watch uh, How to Make It in America, the uh, HBO series where it just like kind of rushed to an end, and it was like they figured out how to make jeans in, uh, uh, at the very last episode, and then the series ended. It was like these guys that were trying to figure out how to make their way into the fashion industry, and it was like, okay, we figured it out, but we're not gonna make the show anymore, and we don't have to address any of that. So this idea of like, yeah, we're gonna make a fine dining restaurant. All right, bye bye seemed like an easy jumping off point and like dude it's a total reshaping of how you make it and how you tell the story in season two and god did they pull it off like it's just it felt like 300 percent of the effort of season one and 500 percent of the payoff for me as a viewer i think one of the things that i like the best about season two was the pivot to like essentially be like all right like you are invested in these characters now we're going to get deeper into each one of them like they're each going to be sort of stationed in their own episode so we're going to have an entire episode about marcus we're going to have an entire episode about sydney we're going to have an entire episode about tina and it never felt like there was just enough flicker of like the back the, you know there'd be a flash of even in like in forks there's a flash of like sydney continuing to work on the restaurant trying to figure out the menu at the beginning of it and there's a flash of fact you know and and carmy like trying to figure out the electricity in the middle of that episode and so you you feel like that stuff is going on while in the background but you're all the time you're learning and you're investing deeper into those characters like i i hope there's like a fac episode in season three <laughs> yeah. i fucking love fac like he's facking is is it is it his brother or his cousin? i don't know there's like 50 facts right but those is his brother when yeah. they're god when they're dressed the same in that fishes episode or they're trying to get the the 
trading card scheme off the ground. Oh. I mean, it's just absolutely epic stuff. Well, one of my favorite <laughs> lines in the whole series is uh, to, to John Mulaney, who makes a great cameo, is, do you have $500 on you? Do you like baseball cards? He's like, let's take those two questions separately. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I have access to five hundred dollars. I'm a forty three year old man. That got me so good. John Mulaney is so good. You can see, like, obviously this role is fairly serious because he's mostly comedic, but you can see just how good he is at like the comedy, right? And those little beats of like, you know, it, where he's like giving the big speech, and we can sort of talk about that later. But where he says, you know, and I'm I'm not gay as much as you guys ask me. Like, I do. I love Mich you know Michelle. Thank you. Uh, he's just so good at those pauses that like make you linger enough. And that, yeah, but I, I want a fact episode. I want, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, there should probably be a, a Natalie episode. I don't think I need a Pete episode, but that, that all Pete the only Cubs fan on the show, by the way. Yeah. I can't, can't continue <laughs> to call that out enough. But it, it, uh, it's kind of like. I don't know if lost is the best comparison of this, but it's the first thing that came to mind in terms of I, maybe it's kind of a lazy storytelling method, but the idea of as seasons go along and as series go along of pulling back through flashbacks to add to the character development really works for me. Right. I mean, like Mikey is the, like one of the central characters of the entire show. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did we see him at all in season one? I don't remember. Very, very okay, briefly, briefly, like yeah. he's in one scene where they Epic are like scene. sitting around the kitchen. Yeah, they, they were talking about the big story about Bill Murray and all yeah. that. So. But he permeates through the entire thing. And then in one episode in Fishes, it like makes sense. It all makes sense, right? He's sitting at the head of the table of the family and like all of, you could you you had this whole buildup and all the sense of how complicated this family is. And then in one episode, it's like, all right, well, shit. Yeah, they're dealing with some stuff that. I don't even think we could have possibly, they could not have explained to you without showing you in that way, right? That scene is, is, I mean, that, that tells you how, how we get to how fucked up they are by the finale. I think that what the bear does so better than any show in a while that I've seen is it leaves breadcrumbs along the way that later you're like, Oh shit. Like, of course, like that's, that makes sense. Like we see that every second counts thing like two or three times, in the early in the season before like Olivia Coleman comes in and like you it clicks like oh shit like that's why this is stuff and and you see you know oh there's the story about the chocolate banana and so it's like it pays off in later stages and so I mean I think before we get to the sort of fish's fork stuff I do want to I really want to talk about Copenhagen and I want Sally particularly you I want to know if this made you nostalgic at all for the time that Fuck you yeah. spent in Europe because that the tone of that episode was so beautiful and so like quiet and just peaceful. I love, I I've listened to the jazz song that play, I think it's like an African jazz song. I've listened to that probably 30 times since this episode. I've just listened to it over and over on my Spotify because the, the, the saxophone is so great and everything about like Marcus is such a quiet, wonderful character. And I just, I, I was so moved by the way that that, I've never been to Copenhagen. It made me feel nostalgic for Copenhagen. One of the things uh, I, I learned abroad that hit me kind of early on was just like, all right, when I lived in Chicago for six years, maybe that's why this series hits really hard for me too, is I, 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 I in a different way, was kind of searching for purpose in my life, very different lifestyle than this, uh, but searching for purpose in my life while living in Chicago. And going abroad, like everything is just done a little bit different no matter where you go. It's a little bit different and you can think of it one way. You can think like, oh, this is weird. Like why do they have like full-on doors that go to their toilets? Like why don't they have the little stalls like we have with the little gaps in between them? 
It's like, well, wait a second here. Which one makes, which one's weirder here when you think about this? Like, which one, this is what I know. This is the thing that I know. And this is how they do it over here. And I felt like that, that captured that, like him going over, I assume that was his first time going abroad and him going over and experiencing a different lifestyle, meeting a different kind of person that he was not going to meet in the kitchen of a, you know, a, a, a beef shop in Chicago and, learning from that person and finding differences, talking about football with somebody that clearly has no idea what American football is. It, uh, it, it, yeah, it was beautiful. And like what hit me immediately, I was like, Oh, this is fake. They didn't really actually go to Copenhagen. Like they went to Copenhagen, right? (laughs) Okay. I I kept like, like squinting a little bit. I'm like, I don't think you can fake this. Like they're in Copenhagen for this, which is a huge undertaking for a show to do. I mean, I remember, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's it's evolved from the 90s, but I remember like friends went across to London in, in an episode and they were like, oh, yeah, we're never doing that again. Like never, ever <laughs> doing that again. But again, that just shows like the level of investment in this show. Uh, it, it it pays off. It really does. In the last maybe five years, like it's doing a couple of TV pieces with ESPN and then doing some of what we do. I've sort of understand like how much work it is to like fly the drones up and like to take set up different shots or whatever. And so from the time that Marcus arrives in Copenhagen to when he gets to the boat, I counted, it, there's 40 cuts among that. And I was thinking about that. I was like, oh my God, like think of how many different scenes had to be set up and and the you know locations to you know scout person be like, all right, we want this shot of this church and we want this shot of the water and we want this shot of, of this and we're going to cut back to Marcus walking along the way. And I was like, that is such a, a sort of like a metaphor for like, how much care is put into cooking, right? It's like the details and the ingredients matter because I get a feel for what Copenhagen is because they're not cheating in that sense. They're like, nope, it's going to be 40 freaking cuts in in literally 90 seconds from this moment to this moment. And it's not going to feel like crammed. It's going to feel rushed. It's just going to give you a feel of sense of the city. And I was just like, oh my God, that's a lot of work. Well, compare that to uh, Chef Terry when the, the final episode, final scene or near the final scene of forks uh what what is she shaving or what is she uh doing when mushrooms, she, mushrooms yeah. shaving mushrooms and, the, and it's just simply to let the view like the 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 guests know that somebody spent a lot of time preparing their food it was exactly how i felt about the entire series it was like i see you like i see you shaving the mushrooms in this entire series i see you and i appreciate it and i think what's cool about this too is we're you know whatever 30 some minutes into this episode and we haven't even mentioned really carmy jeremy allen white you know, the, the main character of the show. And I think that's kind of what season two does so good. You know, you mentioned it earlier, Kevin is like kind of taking this universe and like blowing it up and expanding it out and, you know, offering all these other rabbit holes to go down. And I think it, it is a pretty unique, you know, Chris Storer talked a little bit about that with, with our friend, you know, Chris Ryan on his podcast and, and, you know, it, it takes a different actor to also be down for that too, right? To to be able to like share the, you know, share the experience and share the ball and pass it around and and to do all that stuff. And it sounds like he's, you know, I know he's had a uh, maybe a rough couple of weeks since the bear has come out, but uh, it's it seems like he's very much down for uh, down for playing that role, which I think you know can be as much of a metaphor as you want for restaurants and the kind of domineering chef and the guy who wants to be the center of attention and all of those things. Right. It's, I, I think that's, what's cool about the show is it, it can be kind of a metaphor you can project onto, onto a lot of different things. Totally. And I think to the order of things, you know, matters, right? So when, 
when they first draw in the first thing, I think, you know, uh, Carmi and Sydney are having a discussion about, Hey, let's, let's send Marcus to, uh, you know, I think they say Copenhagen to sort of learn to make desserts, whatever. And she's like, can we afford that? So, yeah. So we don't really know at this point that Carmi has worked in Copenhagen or that he's worked for chef Terry, but like he goes to Copenhagen and Luca tells that story about like, I, you know, I had th this guy who I was with and he, he was the best. And I, I was like, you know, I'll never be that guy. So I better learn how to be like the, the second best. And Marcus says, Oh, you're like Scotty Pippen. Well, he's, who's that? Oh, you know, he's Michael Jordan's kind of guy. And then you, you think, oh, is it, is it, you know, Carmi? Like probably, but you're not totally certain. And then you see the picture of them in Forks when Richie walks through the thing. And then you realize that like, that was also Chef Terry's restaurant. And there's a every second counts thing up there. And like, all these things kind of like bricks that are building like over time. So, so when those moments hit, you're like, Oh shit, of course that makes sense. And so I, you can't, if you could watch them out of order, sure. And you'd still enjoy it, but you wouldn't get quite the emotional resonance of like, Oh, I need to watch honeydew and then, you know, and then pop and then forks and then fishes in order to sort of see, make it all make sense. Can I, let me throw one thing at you here, just as we look ahead to what will surely be season three. I think, if I look back at season two and you know, it's been a couple of weeks since I've watched it, but when I, I look back and I listen to you guys talk about it and, and think on kind of like what I really liked about it, I think it's interesting that I far and away loved the backward looking stuff a lot more than I loved the real time kind of forward moving stuff. You know what I mean? And, and when I, I sit and I look at it now, I mean, I loved kind of the Oliver Platt, like how are we going to get this thing open that that type of stuff is fun. The the little tiny, you know, the fire suppression stuff is is fun from a like, is it going to work or not going to work? But I think I did maybe if we're offering a little criticism, maybe did get a little lost in some of the relationship stuff. Some of that was just a, I, I really liked how it started. And I think I, I had a hard time shaking. I was talking to Justine about this. She had a lot of very good thoughts and she kind of changed my mind or, or made me see things a little differently than that. Like. I don't know how much I was. I love the Molly Gordon performance. I think she's awesome. I like kind of couldn't take my eyes off her every time she's on the screen. But that character itself was a little weird to me. Maybe just like soup, maybe the most like eligible person in the history of the world. And just like, <laughs> I think I'm just going to like hang out and wait for this like fuck up to maybe like not be a fuck up. Like, eh, maybe. Maybe that happened. I've seen a lot of that criticism of like, she's the manic pixie dream girl and she's doesn't really have a personality. And I think that there's some validity to that. I think you have to sort of hope that, you know, they round her out a little bit more in season three, but I also think Is like, she even there or did they like break up? Did she bounce? After, I, I think she probably thing, like, but. I think they're, they're shipping them, uh, the, the two of them that he's going to sort of, I mean, he's clearly like, in love with her. I, I will say though that the, just enough backstory of like the, you know, in fishes where they're like, Oh, you know, the girl who lived like, you know, just four to three doors down is like, you know, she's hot as shit now, dude. Like she, she's, you know, she's, uh, what is this? Tiffany said, Oh, Tiffany used to babysit her. And she's like, just studied science. She's in fucking medical school, bro. Like you should totally like you, she's in, you're in love with her. So obviously like Carmi had some like childhood kind of interest in her when he was like, you know, a fuck up, uh, then. And she was like this maybe had a much more stable situation. So I get a little bit of like, she might've like 
you know, been nerdy and been, I mean, he says at one point, like, you know, you're beautiful. And she kind of like scoffs like, no, like, so she kind of grew up maybe with the idea of like not being hot and not being a smoke show. Who's like a doctor. I mean, maybe the only thing that didn't necessarily resonate with me is like, well, how much of like an emergency room, you know, doc who's probably working 70 hours a week going to be like hanging out at like a, you know, party that's a high school party with, uh, with those people. That was, uh, look, I've been to those parties and I've had an absolute blast at those. I, I probably didn't go to too many of them once I hit my 30s. Like I would come home from Baltimore back to Montana in my 20s and be like, oh, yeah, let's go get like hammered and shit. And like once I hit 30, I was like, yeah, man, like I cannot go to like a fucking high school party with all of our friends anymore. That's just that's too much. Yeah, some of that some of that stuff felt a little tiny bit flat for me. And I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how they, you know, how they I guess, treat Carmi's life outside of the restaurant because that clearly is, you know, a big, massive, massive part of what they're trying to explore and what they're trying to pull at because the stuff inside the restaurant is so good. But, you know, what what does it look like once he leaves? And I, I think that the it just felt like a little bit of a swing and a miss on, on some of that stuff. So what do you what do you think about that? I I'm, I literally wrote the I have very few notes, but I said the Claire storyline. What do you guys think? It was kind of like <laughs> I, I was curious to get your thoughts on it because it wasn't really working for me. Uh, the only thing that that was was I some I constantly find myself uh, battling the immersion in your job and your purpose uh, with like personal relationships. And totally. The payoff was kind of weird at the end. I didn't think it was. I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't hit with any feeling when in the freezer scene at the very end. And I feel like I was supposed to be, it was kind of a, uh, uh, a way I felt near the end, but I, I was just, it, it felt like kind of a rushed conclusion of, I can't do both of these things at once. It didn't feel like they earned that one enough. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think I agree with that. I didn't get anything out of the freezer scene. Like I didn't, I wasn't sad that they, had broken up just because like in a Shakespearean way, he happened to be talking about her when she overheard, you know, that he was, you know, it, it would be better almost if he like blew up at her and was like, I, you don't understand. Yeah. Like I have to do this and screen in her face or something. And I, I just, the idea that it was like all a big misunderstanding or whatever, it was sort of silly. But um, I, I, I will say there is a lot of people on the internet who like think that like Carmi and Sydney are destined to be together. And I find that to be, I really dislike that because I think that like men and women ought to be able to have like normal friendship relationships on television without being, you know, automatically, uh, you know, in the end romanced for each other. And I like the fact that he is like a mentor to Sydney in a very non, you know, in a very platonic way. And I hope that that kind of continues because I think those relationships can are kind of rare and do exist in real life. Like it's not, always like some horn dog you know chef is gonna now i will say that a lot of people who work in kitchens are like there's way more banging that goes on in kitchens and fighting and screaming and drugs and stuff than as this show reflects but you know there's an element of fantasy to the whole show i think uh that i think we should talk about in in forks is that that kind of stuff is there is a little bit of heightened like hopefulness uh that may not totally be reflected by reality but it still makes me feel good as a viewer to watch. Yeah, I think you can take the the Carmi and Sydney stuff away. I, I won't be participating in in that idea. That, that, what about Marcus and Sydney though? Sure, they seem like they have yeah. to work. That's that seems great. It seems like they're hanging out outside of work. You know, Marcus kind of is it a two way street shot. though? Of no, of I think he, I think he got shot down. Okay, pretty. pretty I think he got shot, right? but I don't think she is like ready to have like a relationship. I think she's still like you know. The kind of person who pushes people away uh and yeah i think 
I, I think that will sort of evolve and maybe she'll try to sort of be vulnerable a little bit, uh, particularly because, you know, he was vulnerable with her, but um, I, I don't think that it's like doomed to that's uh, I, I think she, there'll be some interest there. I mean, she was on FaceTiming with him and making funny faces with him. And I, I love that look in Copenhagen where she was like, oh, I miss you, dude. He's like, yeah miss you too like he was totally like oh, fuck i'm super fell hard for this girl <laughs> already so uh kev i'm just kind of strolling through the the agenda that you put together here i can't can't help but notice this one uh do you believe marcus as a uh you know a believable d3 outside linebacker well i'm not sure why like he had to be a division three outside <laughs> linebacker like why can't <laughs> Why couldn't I mean listen, Marcus honestly, he strikes me more as a defensive end. Like he's like six three, right. like he's a Come big out. dude, like you know, set the edge, but he's like, Oh, defend the pa-. I don't see like Marcus running around in pass coverage. No, like, I agree. Know, knocking balls out. I mean, maybe like a you know, Demarcus Ware, Julius Peppers kind of situation where you're occasionally dropping back into coverage, but I would have just been like, no, man, Marcus, put your hand in the dirt and absolutely get to the quarterback. Like that's and also I division three where he's like, Oh, it paid for school, like, yeah, you can get financial aid boosts being a division three athlete but i think i would have been like oh yeah i was like a you know i played not at like northwestern but like some shittier like chicago area uh school you know where it's like oh i was a backup there or whatever or something that would have been more if i was giving notes uh for, for football things i would have basically said oh yeah he's a played at northern illinois man like that's where he, he played at <laughs> go, go huskies yeah all right, let's get into some of the big dog, the big dog episodes. Really, I, I mean, you, you kind of talked uh, about the Copenhagen episode a little bit. Anything else you want to cover off of that one before we move on to, to fishes? Let's see. We get a little bit of uh, Coach K uh, in that one where uh, Marcus is like talking to her about Coach K. How did you guys feel about which, the Coach K stuff? I actually liked it in part because Coach K is a Chicago guy and you would not really know that. Uh, As someone, just, again, notably outside of Chicago, admittedly, yeah. there's not a lot of people talking about like with Coach K posters up on their wall. <laughs> like they're not like, oh, Chicago guy. Yeah, he's one of the guys yeah. from the old neighborhood, Coach K. <laughs> Listen, you, like, need to read, you, know, you need to read that Ray Thompson story that came out uh, I guess. a year ago or so when Coach K retired because there's a lot of Chicago in that. A lot of uh, Polish neighborhood sort of stuff. But Maybe I've like, K, Kanye, and Cootie. <laughs> That's what I think. Kanye, Coach K, he had to go back to Chicago. Uh, no, I, I think it, I don't know. I think it, I saw it, certainly some more Mike Ditka giving the finger posters mm. on people's walls. Yes. But I did, I did Coach K posters. But I hope we get more Bears content because as someone who grew up uh, as a Bears fan, uh, I would like to see a little they bit of. You know, they got a rich tapestry to pull from with the Bears moving to Arlington Heights and that whole that whole situation going on. If they want to, depending on how into the real world they want to get, there could be some good digs there. Well, I did like the I did like the Coach K stuff just because I knew he's a Chicago guy. And I do like that. It sort of sets the she talks about like the comeback against Maryland. Like she's kind of dismissive of it. Like, oh, you know, they were down and then they came back. You know, they hung together sports. Uh, And I thought that was a a very funny kind of uh, like I don't know, someone from a girl who doesn't follow sports like perspective to like write that. And then later you see her watching that actual comeback. I think it's during the fire suppression thing or after it. And then it it happens essentially in the final where like fucking chaos breaks out and she has to be Coach K. Uh, so it, it's kind of maybe it's a little bit sort of heavy handed or whatever. But I just like that her dad like gave her that book as a, as a dad with three girls who constantly like uses sports to try to teach them like life lessons. Uh, it, it sort of, you know, stuck with me a little bit. 
it's all a massive Duke guy. I know Any, anything, <laughs> anything to say about, about coach K slapping the floor. Uh, it was, it was, it was very mid for me. Yeah. It was maybe two on the nose. I, I'm guessing that was more addressed to people that didn't follow basketball very closely, but which I yeah. do kind of like, I, I dig what you're saying, KVV and the, the idea of kind of like putting some of these like iconic sports moments that a lot of sports fans just like, you know, kind of feel naturally ingrained into like their brain chemistry, like almost putting, putting them under glass and, and kind of examining them like they're, you know, these rare butterflies and picking them apart and like talking about them very academically is always like a very funny, it's just a very funny thing. Right. That I think ultimately kind of gets you to the same outcome. Right. And it's the same, the the place that she gets to is the same thing that, you know, Duke fans would get to, but it's just, it's such a wildly different way of getting there, which I think is, is really fun. I think it's also, I was just saying, also just the, you know, maybe it's painfully obvious, but a lot of the series is about, it's not about your skill as a cook, right? It is about your ability to work with other people, right? And manage other people and like everyone kind of buying into the yes chef thing and announcing corners so you don't get stabbed. And, and the, you know, they dive in a little bit of Sydney and Carmi's potential kind of holes in their partnership uh in, in certain points and it, it you know maybe you know kind of smacks a little bit in the face of like yeah learning about the personal dynamics within the kitchen is a lot like working as a team as well so in that way it was it was working but totally yeah. I, I think Sally I, I was uh having beers with your your beloved uh backup catcher Luke Maley uh, a couple a couple of weeks ago uh touching fingies touching fingies through the through the through fence the, through the gate no he was playing in Milwaukee and uh we we got some beers after the game and I was just talking about like you know the Reds were kind of predicted to be like maybe not historically bad but just really predicted to be like a a losing team this year and the fact that they had i know they've kind of cooled off since but the fact that they had so much juice they had sprung into first place they were like massively outperforming i'm just like what does that like feel like inside of a professional sports locker room like how does that you know it's like stupid question like how does that happen he's like man it's such a cliche i know how much of a cliche it sounds like but it is literally just like winning every single pitch there's no pitches off every single pitch is 100 and then that pitch is over you take a breath you start over and then you just try to win the next pitch and you try to win the next pitch and, and you just you do that enough times it kind of adds up to like something pretty cool and i was like ready to run through the fucking wall as he's describing this and as i'm watching my like you know, just floundering White Sox who uh, haven't won a pitch in three months. But it's like, I think there's a lot of what this show gets at that that's kind of the same thing, right? And that's where I did like the sports metaphors coming in because it's the same thing as peeling the mushrooms, right? It's the same thing as as listening to all the guests in the Forks episode. It's the same thing as wiping all the Forks. It's just like, man, you got to just winning every single pitch. That's what adds up to these massive results. I think this is why you're bringing this up, but Luke Maley should be the starting catcher for the Reds. Now I, I agree. Really outperformed I, he needs to get his own episode. You know, was <laughs> <laughs> his back. Oh yeah. Uh, DJ, uh, one final thing. One final thing about Copenhagen before we move on, I think to, to fishes as someone who occasionally has to decide when to include like 
randos who kind of wander into your main subjects, uh, you know, world. I was curious what you thought about the scene with Marcus and the the guy with the bike who crashed into the fence and what, what you thought that uh, Storer was trying to do there. I honestly, I, I feel like an idiot. I don't really know. I've thought about that so much and I, I don't have a great answer for you. I, I wish I did. Like I, I, I think there's, probably something about just you know compassion and taking care of people even if you don't know them and you know kind of stopping what you're doing and putting putting the guest you know the guest quote unquote like putting their needs ahead of ahead of your own maybe but other than that i i was i was at a little bit of a loss with that one what was your takeaway I kind of thought that it might be something to sort of, first of all, it's showing that like there's obviously a kindness to Marcus that he like thinks and cares about like a random stranger. But then the fact that like your, the tension is sort of built up, like your, your expectations in TV are like, oh shit, like something terrible is going to happen. Marcus is going to do this and he's going to get arrested or something. Someone's going to think like he beat this guy up or whatever. And like the guy hugs him, you know, as like a thank you. And, and then it just sort of like, dissipates and it's like wait a minute like maybe europe there's like a little bit what Sally's talking about maybe europe is like doing things right and doing things <laughs> way better than america in the sense of like that could go pretty fucking bad for like a big african-american dude like helping out in a situation in the united states where things could you know and and here's just like tenderness and kindness and like i don't know maybe that it's sort of commentary on that yeah i like that i, I think that's i think that's probably right i, I think the only other time i felt that because i i do weirdly like when shows will kind of misdirect you like that make you feel like something something bad's about to happen i don't, i feel like i talk about this all the time but uh richard link later talked about that with boyhood where it's just like there's all these little moments in that movie where you know they're they're in the abandoned house and they're playing with the nail gun and it's like oh i bet like you think that like someone's gonna go to the hospital or someone's gonna get their eye shot out or something he's like real life is like that usually doesn't happen usually it's you know Usually it's kind of like the more boring outcome and everything's mostly fine. And I, I felt the same way with Richie uh, when they're doing the deep dish pizza thing in the Forks episode. And and he, you see him, there's a very intentional shot where he he puts the tray of deep dish pizzas behind his back oh. and, you, and you're just like, oh my God, he's going to drop them. I thought it was going down. I thought for sure. And I think obviously it doesn't. And I think that even is just another thing of just like, hey man, like you got to, you gotta let people do the thing. Like they might drop it, but they probably won't, right? Like let them let them go out there and and give it a shot, and let them prove you wrong, and let them surprise you. And it, it just was a very cool kind of two moments that were, I guess, weirdly maybe a little bit connected. But all right, let's talk. Let's talk fishes. So of course, this is the uh, this is the holiday episode. We've got you know I don't know six hundred cameos. In this episode, John Mulaney, we mentioned Bob Odenkirk shows up, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, who else am I missing? I mean, John Barry, of course, Sarah, Sarah Paulson, Sarah Paulson shows up and it's just kind of a kind of a like a who's who uh, making up the supporting characters in in the rest of this family. And as you guys mentioned earlier, it's it's basically the episode where we find out, you know, hey, here's here's a lot of the trauma. Here's a lot of the dysfunction. Here's a lot of the backstory as the mother played by Jamie Lee Curtis, Donna uh, is trying to put together this, you know, feast of the seven fishes. KBV, I know you loved this one. Talk to me about what, what, what you love so much about it. I think it's one of the most realistic depictions of dysfunction, particularly like at the holidays. Like I have a big Irish family that um, doesn't, you know, always get along and occasionally like the holidays certainly never to this degree but it seemed like i had a lot of dinners 
Thanksgiving, Christmas dinners growing up where there was like seven different things going on in the house at one time. Like there's people drinking over here and there's people like dancing to Dominic the donkey and there's people like <laughs> arguing about something and everybody's drinking a little bit too much and the kitchen is fucking chaos. And, you know, we didn't scream at each other, uh, but there were times when like there were arguments and disputes and, and sort of, you know, uh, shouting matches and tears over stupid shit. And it always, it feels like you have just no rest in this episode, right? It's just like, boom, boom, one, one bad thing to another. And your, your anxiety level is like up to an eight, like all the time until like it gets to like a 10 in the, in the very end. And I just thought that that was like, everybody's talking over each other. Uh, and so you can, you don't even know like how all these people are related uh, in some ways you're trying, you have to kind of piece that together. Like, wait, are the facts like their cousins? Or are they just like family <laughs> friends? And like, who is uncle Lee and, you know, uh, uncle Cicero and like, Hey, it, I just, it just feels like I've been at functions like that. We are like, wait, how am I related to you again? Like you're, oh, right. You're the second cousin or you're like person who just hung around all the time when we were there. So they, we make you feel like family. And I, I just think that all of the, all the pieces that sort of are dropped in the beginning, like Barenthal and Abiella, they are, are out talking and it essentially sets the bait for the entire episode, right? He's like, don't say to mom, like, are you okay? you know how that like sets her off. Like you just don't have to do it. And she's like, I don't want, do you think I want to do it? Like, I don't want to do that, whatever. And then in the very end, like it gets to the Chekhov's gun thing. It like comes back at the end. And it's like, that's the rare instance where it does like hit and it hits like, Oh shit. Like as soon as she says that, you know, Holy shit, it's gone bad. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'm talking too much about this. So I'll pass it back to you guys. Like, Sally, I, I'm curious. I actually was, I don't know if spoiled is the right word, but everyone, I, I, didn't watch the episodes right as they dropped. And so I ended up seeing like people talking about like, holy shit, like episode six is one of the most intense episodes of television I've ever seen. And so I was like sitting down thinking like, okay, like this is going to be like a big deal. And I, I wish I had come into it kind of cold and and just not known what to expect. I had a, a little tip off to it of, you know, Get ready for the Christmas dinner scene was what I all I was told. I was like, God, just don't say. I don't need to know that. Yeah. I don't need to know yeah. that. I'm sorry. I, I found this similar to uh, review in the, in the first season, episode seven, which was the famous like one shot of the fuck up in the kitchen. In terms of how they delivered the stress of the situation through like frustrating storytelling, which is just frantic yelling in that, in that episode was like, my heart was pounding through my chest and I felt the stress of that kitchen of like getting all those orders out. And this one was like, I totally see what you're doing here. Like, I hate, I hate all of this dialogue. I am <laughs> so annoyed right now. I don't really want to watch this. I know things are going to go very poorly. I would never want to hang out with these people. I would not want to be around these people. I would not want to be like, and that's probably Carmi's like, yeah, dude, like I'm going to stay in Cope. I'd rather stay in Copenhagen than like be like spend my holiday doing this. Like who would want to be a part of this? And the deliverance of that just was why I find this like like style of storytelling so immersive it was just like, dude, I felt like I was there. I do not have a family that can really, my family cannot relate to that. Thankfully I can say, but um, it, it again was just peeling back all these onions of like, ah, okay, well that clicks why this is like this, why blah, blah, blah. And it also just leads to, you know, not to get to the finale as well, but a, a painful final, uh, one of the final scenes of this of the show is the, you know, the Pete conversation with Donna outside of 
the restaurant of, yeah, now we like really understand the stress of the the family situation at home. And, uh, uh, Odin Kirk, Jamie Lee Curtis is a, just a, uh, this is not news, but just a, <laughs> <laughs> an e- e- enormous talent. Like it, just to like watch somebody come in and just, I think the acting is very good in the series, but still run circles around everyone else. And just, I didn't feel like I was watching like the highest compliment you can pay an actor is like, I don't think I'm watching the actor. I'm watching the character. I didn't feel like I was watching her. It was a character and it felt like she was been a part of that show for five seasons. And, uh, it was, it was, it was incredible. I just, I was so moved by the next episode that I was like, okay, I don't even want to talk about fishes. Let's talk, let's talk about forks. I moved <laughs> no, on quickly from it. Totally agree. I think it's, it's like the best episode of TV that I never want to watch again. Yes. Right. It's like the whole time I was listening to it, I felt like I was going to have a fucking panic attack. The uh, like such an awesome decision, I think, with the with the music, how they basically just have this again. There's no like soundtrack or, or like score to it. Right. There's just like these like popular songs just blaring in the background where you're trying to like hear what's going on but you know got my mind set on you is just like blaring and you're trying to suss out and like oh, my god that is exactly what it feels like it you know much much less uh substance abuse and uh, alcohol abuse and all of those things at my my family dinners as well but very similar uh volume at at my family dinners uh and it's just yeah you see Carmi, like at once you both see like why he's endlessly comfortable in that situation and almost like feels you know like he kind of probably craves that situation and feels at home in that situation and also is like yeah what's the farthest restaurant away in the world noma cool i think i'm gonna go move there right and so i, I loved that i loved the sarah paulson john mulaney characters like the two cool you know kind of above it all characters who are are in from where they were new york or san francisco i forget which new york new york, new york. Yeah. but those two both like kind of swooping in of just like oh yeah like this whole thing's kind of beneath us but like we stay you know it's christmas we gotta be here and you know that that vibe like i have cousins that have always felt like that to me and felt like very very similar i loved how they did they treated that and uh you know at the same time like when when like real stuff starts to happen there's not really like joking your way out of it right like there's you can't you can only kind of deflect for for so long when that when that fork uh decides to take off there's there's not really anything anybody can do god bob odenkirk's so fucking good at that that episode it's just (laughs) he's the the perfect stepdad yes oh it's just man what a what an episode of of tv and two it has you know it has those tender moments too like when you know he gives mikey the the thing about you know we could do this restaurant together and it's like a picture of the yeah the bear in the window and and mikey knows like he's too much of a fuck up to basically make this happen and that you know it's another sort of thing where it kind of helps you understand like why he put all the money in the tomato cans and then killed himself because it's like i need carmy to get this money and to sort of live out this dream but i can't fucking be around because i'm not you know I'm sort of I'm not okay, uh, and man, I, I did rewatch it uh, in anticipation of this, and I thought you know the same way that you did, Deej, about I don't never I don't ever need to see that again, but I, I did really enjoy it actually a second time and started to like 
appreciate a couple more things. I well, honestly, so dis- I completely... it's probably so disorienting. Like the first time you watch mm-hmm. it, that you just have no yep, idea what's yep. going on. Once you have like the roadmap, it probably is much more yep. enjoyable to watch it the second time. I, I will say too, I, I hand up, I missed because of it. So disorienting the first time I missed the whole story where uncle Cicero is telling the thing about the chocolate banana. Yes. And so my wife had to explain that to me in the final. She's like, don't you remember that in the fishes episode? I was like, no, I totally whiffed on that. So that, <laughs> would have hit probably much harder in the finale uh if i had but i was like processing like holy shit like this whole thing and i just i wrote down john mulaney's uh speech when they ask him to give a grace uh which i I cannot deliver it in the way that he can but i'm going to just read it because i think it's like monologues are so hard to write because it often don't sound like people really talking they sound like someone is delivering a monologue and i think that this was a great example of like a person giving a monologue that actually sounds like what what a, what an awkward grace would sound like uh because he gets so good job of like the pauses and the awkward things he says hey uh it's it's great that we're all together and and healthy i think no one here is is physically very sick uh i'm so, i'm so grateful for this beautiful meal donna what what an incredible job Donna did! I could hear in there, and it's just it's just gorgeous. And, and is he still holding that fork? Of course. Okay, sure. Listen, everybody is asking what is the seven fishes or why we do it, and I I think I know. As soon as I think of it, <laughs> it's it's a chance to be together, and to take care of each other, and and to eat together. And there is seven fishes, which means that you have to make seven entirely different dishes, seven entirely different ways. And that takes a lot of time. And I think that spending that time and using that time on the people that we love is how we show them that we love them. And maybe we eat too much and we definitely drink too much and we say too much without listening. But uh, tonight we're going to chew, eat seven fishes, which is absurd. But we have to take extra time to do it. We have to chew more and listen more. And we only get to do this tonight one time. So and I, I, by the way, I love it. Uh, thank you for having me this this year. I, I very much look forward to this every year. And I love you. And I'm very loved with Michelle. And I'm not gay, like you guys ask a lot. I was thinking about what you said about bears and how they're aggressive. They're aggressive, but they're kind. They're sensitive. And you guys have been so kind to me. You let me hang out with you every holiday. And I don't have a family like this. And you make space for me at this table. And you make time for me in the holidays. So God bless us and keep us safe in the new year. And please give Michael the strength to not throw that fork. Amen. (laughs) Such a good, like rambling, but also heartfelt like speech. I just, I will always enjoy it. I remember I said to my wife, my brother-in-law comes from like a, he hates like stressed out, like people like fighting and talking and stuff, whatever. And I was like, this is how my brother-in-law Terrence must feel at our like holiday dinners when like people everyone's being way too loud and drinking way too much and talking and i was like man john milani like he could play my brother-in-law in any movie about my life <laughs> and what a great uh, i mean what a like i don't know if it's risky but just not the guy that you know in that cast of characters not really the guy that you would uh anticipate giving that speech until you really think about like exactly what you just said right like he's surrounded by all these heavy hitter actors he probably feels wildly out of place like trying to keep up with all these people from an acting perspective Mm -hmm. and which i think just even lends more to that monologue and feeling out of place and and all of those things it's just such a brilliant decision to have him have him do that anything else on uh on fishes before we move on i got i gotta think that if 
your mother drove a car in through the house, uh, that it would be like a story that the neighborhood would tell forever, that it would be like the, the legend of like the crazy Italian mother who flipped out. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, the, the final shot of like, you understand why, uh, Carmi can't make cannolis or whatever, why he says in some previous episode, like cannolis make me sick. It's like a family thing. And then you see like the fork yeah. sticking out of the cannolis there. It's like, oh yeah, like food can be associated with yeah. trauma too. Absolutely. God, that's a good shot. Uh, so that takes us, speaking of forks, into uh, the seventh episode, I believe it is. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Forks, which is, you'll remember the episode where Richie serves at the kind of Alinea-esque restaurant that, you know, really supposed to be kind of like top restaurant in the in the country. It's called Ever. That's the Ever. restaurant. Yeah, it is a That's real restaurant right. in Chicago. They shut it down for a week to film this episode. Is that right? Yeah. That's bonkers. Yeah. Holy wow. cow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So he goes there as almost like a week-long kind of boot camp apprenticeship thing that that Carmi has uh, put him on. I, I think, like, originally the, the episode's kind of set up in, that, in Richie. You know, I think thinking that Carmi's just trying to get him out of the way, trying to get rid of him, trying to uh, just you know, create space so that he can do his own thing. Uh, and over the course of this episode, Richie kind of realizes that, you know, he's trying to maybe have a much, much larger lesson sink in about, you know, responsibility and service and respect and all of the things that uh, he goes through. Purpose. purpose. All of the things that he goes through and and hopefully finds in this episode. Uh, Solly, what'd you love about this episode? Uh, everything. Uh, it was... <laughs> Uh, not maybe not hyperbole, but probably the greatest single episode of any show I've ever seen. I struggle to come up with something bigger and better. I just fucking sobbed. I I, I lost it. Uh, I there was just tears of joy for a character that I hated for the first fourteen episodes. Like it was incredible turnaround. It was I I was not rooting for this guy at any point. It was an enormous payoff again for all the patience that I that I you know preached about the storytelling aspects of this show. The season opens with him talking or in the first episode, he is talking to Carmi about purpose. Right. And, you know, you're watching his life erode. We just got back off the fishes episode where we're seeing him happy with a, uh, a pregnant, his pregnant wife and a kid on the way. And like five years later, he's now divorced and, uh, you know, it's not going great for him and he's searching for purpose and just is struggling to find a way he's going to fit into this new world. And like, Again, they just don't smack you in the face with it. They don't say a lot of this stuff out loud. It's just like the gradual expenditure of time in that week and the different ways they point out why, what, what value the employees of this high-end restaurant get out of their job, right? And the, the conversation he has with Garrett, I think, is the swarmy little manager that's just like, you really like buy into this stuff, man? And he's like, as he explains it to him, and then they go and talks to the woman who is running the ticker tape and, and, and running through all the people that are going to be there tonight. And they, 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 you see like he starts to experience the joy that the servers get out of serving these people and the purpose. And then when he goes to Pequod's and he gets the pizza and like, and then it, it, ah, it's just so fucking good. And then he comes back and I think he delivers like the line of the season. Like when he gets back to the restaurant and he's wearing a suit and he says, yeah, I wear suits now. <laughs> it was just fucking great, man. It was awesome. And it was, I, I don't know. I want to rewatch. I'm afraid to rewatch it because I don't feel like I need to. I feel like so much of it is ingrained. Like all of that is from memory of just watching it once. That was months, whenever it was like, I just, it was so captivating. I don't recall ever like crying 
for a TV show in that way. Like uh, there's, you know, happy, cheesy moments that, that happen that, you know, you may tear up or really sad moments in a TV show that may tear up, but like how that whole week, like crescendo, how he starts getting up a little bit earlier, has a little bit more spring in his step every day. And like him finding a little bit of that purpose. I don't know. It just, it was really, really, really working for me. What part did you cry at? Like, what was the thing that made you sort of, I think the Taylor Swift, the, the love story, uh, in the car that was hitting me, uh, a lot. And the Pequot getting the pizza, uh, that, that got me really good. And then the, the I, I wear suits now, like coming back to the restaurant with just like a whole, and like the, the scene with, che- with chef Terry, where again, starting out, he says out loud, like he, he sent me here to polish forks as punishment. He wanted to get me, he thinks I'm in the way, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And chef Terry like leaves him with like, I forget what the exact line is, but Carmi was right about you. You're great with people. He believes, he believes in you. He said you're people. good with people, and he's right. Yeah. That's it. And that was just, again, just a slow simmer of a scene. And uh, I forget the, that actor's name. That, that was a decent-sized cameo. I don't really – I'm not that familiar with her. Olivia Coleman. That's it. Olivia right. motherfucking Coleman. <laughs> She's – Olivia might be the modern goat, like, when it comes to acting. Like, she – it was such – it's such a big deal that she did this scene uh, and was basically there for – I think they filmed it in two hours. I read that she – she got on a plane. She flew over from London. She was there in the United States for twelve hours, and then she flew home. That's like how, uh, and and she's. I mean, she's won at least one Academy Award. I think maybe two, uh, and is one of those. She was in The Crown. She was in. You know, she was Queen Elizabeth, and uh, she was awesome in Fleabag. Which, if you've never watched, Fleabag is an unbelievable show. Uh, so, she's yeah, it was the, the father. Did you ever see that? Yes. Oh Ooh. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of like part of what I mean, she's very good at comedy, but um also does like mostly like very serious, like, you know, period type uh things. But I, I I did not know at all that she was the cameo. And so unlike Fishes, where it sort of was spoiled to me, like I knew Odin Kirk was in it, I knew Melanie was in it, I was like, Holy shit, it's Livia Coleman. And I I just love how even uh Moss Bachrak, I think that's his name how good he was in that scene. Like it's gotta be so scary to be like a sort of mildly accomplished actor, but nothing like you're not a superstar of any kind. And then you like have a fucking one-on-one scene with Olivia Coleman, uh, who actors think is like one of the modern goats of acting and to like hold your own and to just basically be like, you know, Oh, okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not like a drag on this scene. I'm sort of, we're playing off each other. I, I thought that was so great. Man, I, I loved everything. I'm with you, Solly. I loved everything about this. Uh, Chris Ryan was texting me about it. Said it felt like if Michael Mann directed Jerry Maguire, which I th- I thought was like <laughs> maybe the perfect way to to put it. And I just love so much that you have you know Richie gets up in the morning and you see the big white squall poster in his uh, in his kitchen, which is just such a hostile you know hostile piece of art to have in your. Uh, <laughs> in your kitchen but it's just great man it's it's kind of the whole show like boiled down to to one episode right of just like it's all the things we we kind of started talking about purpose and teamwork and practice and service and all all of these things and it it almost kind of felt like a it almost felt like a self-contained like like this is the show sort of right and Mm -hmm. i i love when when shows can do that too they can kind of say like hey here's the entire the entire ethos of what we're going for here it is like kind of front to back just in in one episode i I really Mm -hmm. really really love that 
was a was a week enough for you to sort of make it feel like Richie could find his purpose? I, I found myself a little bit wanting to be like, oh, I wish he was there like a month. Yeah, you know, but uh, but I also, you know, I I think I heard Store say on the Ringer Pod like, how long do you need? Like, once you find something that you're passionate about and and something that you're good at to for something to click. I mean, uh, maybe it just from a storytelling perspective works you know, better for a week. But I was like, in a little bit of me, it was like, oh man, like he spent like two whole days like polishing forks before they let him do anything else. And maybe there's a karate kid element to it. It was like, oh, paint the fence, wax the, you know, these things will have purpose uh, later on down the road. But I don't know. So, I mean, I, I definitely teared up and I don't know if I full on cried, but yeah, like, I, definitely, I don't think I did either. I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I believe me, I cried plenty of shit, uh, but during the Taylor, the Taylor Swift thing, it just, it hit like when you hear the opening, like guitar stuff where they're like having the scene of like, they're quizzing him on stuff. When was the restaurant founded? Like when was it gives a second star and you hear the, the Taylor Swift stuff kicking in. You're like, Holy shit. Are they really doing like, taylor swift needle drop like this is and, and you have you know if you pay attention in fishes like tiffany's wearing a taylor swift t-shirt to the thanksgiving dinner and he, there's a scene when he's with his daughter earlier in the thing where she, he's like i you know i like taylor swift too honey but i just needed to listen to something else i just needed a break yeah he, he just you know he gets the taylor swift tickets and he's like thinking like maybe this will be the way that i'll get my wife to kind of or my ex-wife to kind of come back and hang out with me and maybe we can be a family again and then it just delivers a like crushing blow I was like, man, like what a what a great song that like everybody knows that's like sort of, you know, whether you like it or not, it has it has this uplifting vibe to it. And the way that he doesn't know the lyrics to it quite, he's like kind of singing the parts like people do when there's like a popular song that you like, but you don't quite actually like not a huge fan of it. I just thought that was a great touch. And then it's like a huge love letter to Chicago where you get the the drone in the sky and you're sort of seeing, you know, I don't know what building that is, uh, you guys maybe maybe it's you know the tribune tower or whatever or the sears tower or whatever but it's it just is so gorgeous to see chicago like that i just thought like what a great love letter to this city and this this dude yeah i think i think it just checks checks every single box so I'm, I'm with you i mean it's it's the perfect kind of turn on a character that you you think is just you know you think is kind of an irredeemable piece of shit a little bit. And he's kind of only there for comedic effect. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, this is the guy that is like making me feel more than anybody else on this entire show. Right. It's like, it almost feels like the Tina episodes just ratcheted up to a billion. Right. Because you have so much more context with, with him. But and it what got me too. It was just, I I've done six Chicago winners, the shots of just the breath getting to the car and like, oh. and the, the ice on the windshield. It's like, I just felt that man. I just, <laughs> I've been there. We'll never forget those days. So we were both uh game of Thrones watchers. Did, did you get any Jamie Lannister vibes out of the Richie story of like, we get, we start off hating him and then like he f- sort of moves on, finds his purpose. And by the end, like you're like, you like Jamie Lannister is like the favorite character hmm. of the show. Like I, I got a little bit of that sort of swing and be like, you know, it, you know what's uh, we don't have to turn this into Game of Thrones talk, but the way it ended, like it, yeah, it del- so hard. To- <laughs> it deleted the show from my memory. It de- like it was yeah. so freaking good, and then just the way it ended was just like ah, I can't. I have sour memories, like thinking back on it, and uh, so no, that did not come to mind. But that is interesting. I have to mull on that a little bit. It would be a fun like I, it would require way more work, and we, we would be interested in doing. But it would be funny to like force us to watch the whole last season of Game of Thrones again, and then have a pod where we just vent 
about how fucking terrible it is and how disappointing it was and just the anger that is still lingers in my brain over it. You never watched it, Deej? I didn't. I should check it out. It's totally great. No, yeah, it's, it's a great show. No, it sounds awesome. I mean, it sounds, totally rules. It sounds super uh, fulfilling. Uh, yeah, you should get, invest in 11 seasons of How I Met Your Mother, too. Because <laughs> like, uh, that definitely didn't fucking stab you in the nuts at the last minute, too. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's start to land the plane here. Where where how are you guys feeling about about going forward? And maybe that's a a question about the finale. How well did the finale hit for you? How much are you you know are you feeling connected to the story? Where where are they going from here, Kev? I'll just I know that's a lot of stuff to to throw at you, but just general thoughts, kind of as we leave two and head to head to three. How are you feeling? I feel so from what I understand, they laid out a three season uh, plan when they pitched the show initially to FX or either that or they pitched the show and FX said, we'll come back with a three season uh, thing. So I feel pretty confident that they know where they're going. Uh, and so I'm initially after being a little bit skeptical of like, oh, like, are, are we going to this is a cool thing, like a beef shop in Chicago. We're going to turn it into fine dining. Like, how is that going to work? It's not going to be that interesting. I'm confident that they'll figure out uh, where to go next with it. And I'm hopeful that we'll get a little bit like more depth to Claire and we'll begin to understand a little bit more. I will say the final was, I don't know if it was my least favorite episode, but it, it there was a bunch of things in it where I was kind of like, oh man, like I, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in the final, I think is much less good than, it's not her fault, but then in Fishes, in part because I don't really buy her speech to Pete outside the restaurant there where she's like, I just love them so much. And I just don't know how to show them. I don't think narcissistic people like say that or think like that. I think that actually she would have been like, well, I just, you know, I have so much going on and I can't like, you know, I can't spend my whole night here. I can't, I don't want, they'll just be like so annoyed that I'm here. And I think it would have been best if she had showed up, but was still her same, like, you know, fucked up character instead of being like, Oh, I just love them. And I don't know how to show them that. Like, that is not something that I think like, her character would have said, but I will say that moment with Pete to me, when he goes back and in the restaurant and talks to, to Natalie and he's like trying to hold it in and he's like trying to basically like eat shit for her mental health sake was really fucking moving. Like I was like, Oh my God, Pete's whole character makes so much more sense now. Like, why is she with him? He's a dipshit. He's a Cubs fan. He shows up with tuner casserole at their, like they just make fun of him all the time and like he's and yet he's stable he's like the person that she most needs in her life to feel normal and all of a sudden that relationship clicked for me and i was like oh god of course like she's with pete like pete represents the exact opposite of her family he knows that he has to like suck in all this bullshit from them in order to keep her sane and so that i thought was really good i i totally agree with that i think that's really well said i i especially the part about uh donna and and that part fall kind of fell a little flat for me too and i'm trying to think through why and i think maybe hearing you describe it a little bit and you know thinking on some of the stuff we talked about already i feel like all the hyper hyper realism of the little moments is is why i think everybody loves the show so much and i think what gets really hard and this is you know full uh, acknowledgement of the fact that I have never written a TV show or anything like this. And I can't imagine how hard it is to do so. But I think like that hyper realism doesn't really work when you're, you're trying to land the plane on a TV perspective. You know what I mean? Because like the hyper realistic, uh, thing that, that probably happens is probably pretty boring 
you know, it's kind of what you're saying about Jamie Lee Curtis is like, yeah, that probably wouldn't have happened that way because she probably would have done something that was selfish and you can't really break the glass on the like, you know, driving the car through the front window again. So I, I think it's like it's a really tough place to be with a show like this. I feel like where what makes it so, so, so good is kind of the moments in between the moments and the subtext and all of these little things that we just keep going on and on about, you know, loving so much but i think what gets really hard is eventually you've got to like nail it on the plot stuff too and i just think that's that's really hard to do and kev i know like you've said this and a lot of people have you know the closest comp i think is probably friday night lights and and i feel like they always had kind of a uh a bit of a fail safe with just like the scoreboard of the football game right like that's a very natural a very natural like plot device is just like either you're going to score a touchdown or you're going to get sacked or you're going to win or you're going to lose or whatever. And that kind of does a lot of the the heavy lifting for you. I feel like the restaurant can only be quite so much, you know, either you get the dishes out or you don't either you get the restaurant open or you don't. Uh, there, there's far less like black and white levers to pull on that. And I wonder if maybe that's going to be a little bit of a struggle in season three, because I think that kind of speaks to why I I think I liked a lot more of the breadcrumbs, like looking backwards and catching up to present time a little bit more than I liked going from present time to pushing things forward. Because I just I think it's a little hard to it's a little hard to do both. Does that does that make sense? Or am I grasping at something there? No, I think that that makes sense. I think it's just it's hard to like write a really good like season finale. Uh, because you've exhausted like a lot of your great stuff just to get to there. And so, you know, there's parts of this, the season finale that I enjoyed, but it, I don't know if it, I don't say it was my least favorite episode of the season, but it, it might've been uh, just because it, I had already, you know, so many already things had paid off. Uh, and maybe if I had paid attention better during fishes and the, the frozen banana scene, the chocolate banana scene would have uh, it hit a little bit harder for me. And that was kind of a, a big thing, but I don't know. Sally, what'd you think of the final? What, uh, how did it work for you? At times, a little. I mean, it it was again a uh, a huge, a, a fairly big payoff to the season, which was we haven't really talked about the painstaking detail that of uh, painstaking pace of getting the restaurant ready, and how that would be a montage in a lot of shows of the problems that go into that, right? And again, that's a just a totally different way of doing this. It has allowed me to say. I will write write it on my tombstone. I will never utter the phrase, we should open a restaurant. Uh, I will never. That's just not <laughs> that ain't it. I view the way my food comes out at restaurants. I view it very differently now. Like all that was working um, for me. It just felt like uh, it, it, it didn't feel like they could possibly have been ready on that timeline for it to for it to go well. And it just it, it I, I came away with it just kind of confused on how I was supposed to feel. Maybe that's kind of a metaphor for the whole show. It, it's not supposed to be all clean and easy and it's not a huge one big takeaway at the end of it all. But um, yeah, it didn't fully land. It, it was but it was I don't know. It, it was interesting to to see it uh, to see like Richie, like what we learned about Richie and get, getting him back into that role and like trying to be a problem solver and like taking some pride in it was what I remember the most about it. But yeah, the freezer scene kind of just ended up being distracting. I felt like I, I don't know. It was it was one of the few things that was like a little too obvious, right? Of like the they keep they keep hitting on the handle of the fridge. Did you call the fridge guy? Like she's yeah. about to call the fridge guy, yeah. and then he decides you know call Claire or whatever again, or it's like she and so I don't know. Maybe those 
it's hard to leave breadcrumbs and not be heavy handed about it in storytelling sometimes. And I think that one just maybe crossed that invisible line of it. But, but it also, it is kind of a, again, it's a tribute to like the, the idea of that episode of like, all right, he's helped like bring these people to this moment where like they don't actually need him. And that's a good thing. Like there's a success in that and he can't be happy about it in part because like his ego wants him to sort of, be out there and be fucking problem solving and be that the man. And so then he sort of resorts to his mother. I, I did love the fact that when he and Richie are screaming at each other, that Richie's just like, I love you. I love you. And he's like, fuck you. Fuck you. And he's like, I love you. <laughs> that was great. Like Richie, instead of engaging in the, like, you know, you fuck motherfucker. He was just like, nah, man, like I'm, I'm in a good place now. And so I'm going to just kill you with love. So, well, uh, uh, guys, thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for talking about one of my favorite shows as well. I think it's going to be very, very, very interesting to see where they go from here. I think I think it's an un- unenviable task, I feel like, writing. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but, man, that's going to be a tough, tough, tough one to follow up. I think that's a that's that's a pretty high bar that they set for themselves in season two, and I'm, I'm pretty fascinated to see where it goes from here. And Sally, you're welcome to throw three, four innings in the perfect club anytime. Anytime. Like you did you did great. Yeah, There's thank no, you. Like, uh, like four, four hits in, you know, two and a third, maybe one one run. I be I hit somebody in the head. <laughs> <laughs> uh we okay. we didn't probably didn't talk enough Sydney. I mean, it, it's a, a yeah. really uh, you know, I feel like a lot of the show kind of permeates through her and uh and mm-hmm. we didn't talk a lot of tea. I mean, there's a lot this show just has maybe Maybe they need need to do it weekly, and we need to do a weekly show. That's probably a bit too much, but uh, <laughs> there's there's almost enough there. There there is. We're we're closing in on it. Well, maybe they'll hear our you know full throated criticism, and they'll do it. You know, they'll turn it into a weekly show uh, next year, and us and every other media company in the world can spin up a weekly podcast about it. You know. Well, I, I love that Robert Townsend is her dad. Like, I know he's a you know a great actor from the '80s and and the '90s and stuff. Like a, a big heavy hitters there too. Like he. The, the tenderness between them, like as a a dad, certainly like resonated with me. And I do like too that like you you don't know about the until season two that her mom like died when she was very young. And so you get a little bit more of her backstory too. And you get that amazing montage of her like going all around Chicago and trying out all different sort of foods and trying to figure out like, all right, what do we want to serve? What's good? And like that's just a great another like tribute to Chicago of like, it's a great food city. Let's go ahead and show off some of those things. It must have been so fun as like a scout to be like, all right, we're going to, you know, we're going to hit up some of the like big, you know, thing where obviously we're going to have a Pequod's reference to it, but we're also going to have like all these little teeny like pastry shops and stuff that, you know, are in the know people. And and I I will shout out to just, you know, we've, we've, shouted them out at many many turns here but the the episode of the watch that that chris ryan and andy greenwald did with uh with christopher store was really really good and he talked a lot about uh ao edibiri and her performance and really like more her behind the scenes i found really fascinating hearing him talk about like what a good producer she is and kind of setting up that like she's going to be a monster director uh and she kind of has those those chops as well i think is you know probably probably can signal some you know more involvement from her behind the camera in season three which is exciting so i'm just honestly like i'm blown away by too about the fact that maddie matheson is like a literally a brilliant chef like business person and like a fucking brilliant actor like when he he and his brother are doing the dominic the donkey thing where they're like 
jumping up and down and like doing and like Richie's filming like a TikTok of it or whatever or putting on YouTube. That is so funny and so true to life. And he's like legitimately like a, in all, it's all kinds of scenes like a really good athlete. Like the way he bounces yeah. and moves around with his body is for being a big guy. I I just think he's the fact is like such a great character. And I love the. Uh, the little Easter egg in the thing about how their sister is not allowed to come to Thanksgiving dinner, Fanny Fack. They were like, "There's all these things on the like the bear uh, subreddit of like, what did Fanny Fack do?" And they're like, "Oh, she fucking knows. She, <laughs> she fucking did. She's not welcome here." So I hope we get to meet Fanny Fack in uh, season three because <laughs> she. There's something with Natalie. Like she, I, I don't know if she like hooked up with pete or like you know one of uh, nat's old boyfriends or whatever but obviously like fanny fact not allowed in the bears auto household yeah uh well guys thanks for uh thanks for the time thanks for all the thoughts thank you to everybody for listening uh that that's gonna put a put a bow on the bear season two guys thanks for uh thanks for doing it. i think you know just in time trap draw we always like to be topical around these parts and you know i know i know people have you know maybe been waiting for this one for a couple of days so uh, <laughs> apologies on being five months late to the uh the bear conversation but you know hey here it is better better late than never boys thanks for uh thanks for a good time we will uh we'll talk to everybody soon and uh thanks for listening enjoyed it cheers guys hopefully we'll be back for a season three bear wrap up hell you know three four months after it it uh, debuts. hell yeah